Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. Joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? Good morning, David. I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm hoping you didn't have your money in Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, or maybe if you did, it's fine because it's all FDIC insured, at least if up to $250,000. Uh, I like to spread my money around. Pound. Okay, that's so good. It's not in sort of $249,000 increments. That's very wise. <laughs> uh, so our topic th- uh, today is looking at, at banking. I think as many listeners know, there's been two large... Uh, bank failures uh, in the past uh, few weeks. Silicon Valley Bank, which is the second largest bank failure in American history at $209 billion. Uh, and Signature Bank, which is the third largest bank failure in American history uh, at $118 billion. And, and various other banks in the, uh, I guess, the week or so since those banks failed uh, that have, have looked like they're in some trouble both in the United States and internationally. That's right. Credit Suisse has been taken over and... Uh, yeah, this seems to be a, we might be on the verge or we might be in the early stages of a global banking crisis. So don't panic, listeners. That's um, exactly yeah, what Joe Biden said. Say, exactly. <laughs> well, and that's what FDR said. You know, it's all, that's what, what, what the, the job entails. Uh, so we thought we'd talk about banking and history of banking and bank failures. Uh, listeners, uh, neither of us are economic historians. A bunch of this is really complicated Um but I thought that the, the sort of through line, I think, was, is, is, is less about the minutia of, of how banks work and the regulation regimes or lack thereof, but, but more on, on how Americans think about banks and, and bank runs and bank failures and how that sort of fits into broader political discourses. And I think we're in slightly firmer footing in that area than in the uh, intricacies of Byzantine banking things. Yeah, if you don't know by now to listen to this podcast with a pinch of salt every week you really should this week because we are not experts on this that's for sure (laughs) so so in fact if you want to skip the next week that's fine well no i think we have some interesting (laughs) things to say even if even if we might get some of the the financial details uh i do i do have a couple of facts for you from from this week's economist david which is that uh Silicon Valley Bank saw a uh it lost 42 billion in deposits in a day Yikes. Uh, and fully $229 billion has been wiped off the market value of America's banks so far this month. That's a fall of 17%. So when I said we might be in the beginnings of a, of a banking crisis, uh, I can imagine that somebody more economically literate than me might say, we are in a banking crisis. Um, that's, that's a lot of money. That's real. You know, hmm. A billion here, a billion, billion there, there. Suddenly it adds up to real money. To be sure. Um, I mean, one of the, I think, the interesting things about Banking, uh, you know, is banking is in some ways is in part about confidence and in, in institutions, and I think uh, um, the faith or lack of faith that Americans have in, in a variety of institutions right now is not all that great. And I think banking is one of those places where, uh, you know, this past week has demonstrated that some Americans may not have as much faith in the banking in, uh, sector as as maybe they should or maybe that they used to. Uh, but I think it's part of a sort of broader crisis in, in institutions. Yeah, if you go back to my century, in the 18th century, of course, there were some banks, but they were very mm. rudimentary, and we don't have to go into the minutiae. But what's really, really important in business, as you say, mm. then as now, is confidence. But because banks as we know them didn't exist, and one of the real purposes of banks is to, to, to give people confidence to do business and mm. to believe that you can that the money's there, for example. So what you saw in the 18th century, of course, which is incredible, which were incredibly important at that time, were 
letters of introduction. Mm. These are often features of you know novels of the period and, and so on. And, and, and if you watch period dramas, you know, the letter of introduction is incredibly important. But the reason the letter of introduction is so important is because if you're going to do business, if you're going from Philadelphia to London to mm. do business in 1770, you need a letter from Benjamin Franklin who's known in both places, who can say, David Silkenat is a good guy and he's somebody worth doing business with, you can trust him. And it, it basically, in the absence of the kind of banking and business infrastructure that we have in the modern world, and that mm. involves in your sanctuary, you need these kinds of uh, inter letters of introduction or references because it's about faith and confidence mm. in people, because otherwise you don't know who's a grifter and who yeah. isn't. Now, there are lots of grifters in the 18th century, of course. It's a lot, <laughs> in a lot more effective grifters right. in some ways. Cause because you can... Go somewhere else and con people, but it, it it's it, prior to the emergence of a banking system and banks that hold your money and banks that can guarantee your money and give you loans so you mm. can have a business. Then different structures had to evolve to guarantee people's mm. uh, credit because that's what this is about to some extent. And credit is money's based on faith. faith. Oh, to be but sure, credit is certainly based on confidence. And one of the things you know that, that strikes me about looking at the history of, of banking in the United States is is now most Americans have some kind of banking access. They have some kind of bank account or something adjacent to it. Two hundred years ago, very few Americans engaged directly with banks, and, and including not only poor people who are who's largely unbanked now, uh, but even lots of wealthy people did their financial transactions outside of. You know, formal banking systems. I mean, did 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 TJ have a bank account that he went and deposited his local money in at uh, the local Charlottesville Savings and Loan? Uh, no, and <laughs> Thomas Jefferson is not somebody whose whose business model we necessarily want to follow. But but part of the reason was he got into debt with his creditors, mm. and he also got into debt. You know, so so the, the we don't always have to talk about Jefferson, but he's he's a good example of this. He guaranteed bad, He guaranteed the debts of others, mm. because again, this is expected of a great man yeah. in that in that culture, and they defaulted. Yeah, and well, he ended up responsible for the debts of others, and that was one of the reasons he was so hamstrung by debt late in his life. So it wasn't just his own yeah. mismanagement of his, well, and, his business. And, and he, I think you're right. He was, you know, emblematic of how sort of finance worked, uh, especially for for white Southerners. You know, in the in the end of the 18th century or early part of the 19th century really in, through the Civil War they're constantly lending each other money um, you know that 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 they are whole sort of networks of, of, of credit and debt that are going back and forth between planters in different places where they are you know there's a they're in a very cash poor system a very bank uh, deprived system and they're constantly doing this kind of, of lending money to each other which Often, for many of them, you know, worked out very, very poorly because when one person end up can't pay their their debts, it has sort of you know cycles throughout the the whole sort of social network. And it's a culture where your word word is meant to be your bond. Yeah. And so you don't challenge somebody like yeah. Jefferson exactly. if he says I need a loan, yeah, right. or if he's giving a loan to yeah. somebody. If I it's, it's if, tied in with honor and you know because being indebted is is about being subsor you know subservient to people. And I talk about this a lot actually in my first book. For those people who want to read the back back catalog, but like. You know, to call somebody a debtor was a, was to you know almost you know challenge them to a duel and say they're not really a man. So there's there are all kinds of ways in which people are, are 
giving credit when they really shouldn't and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, in, in fact, this is germane to some of the things we're going to be talking about now mm. because the bank panics mm. and the economic panics of the 19th century are frequently tied to occasional upheavals in the system where people have to call in their debts yes. and yeah. suddenly say, sorry, I know actually, you're an audible man and I know you're good for it, but actually I need the money. money yeah. And and so we end up and, and so the 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 early bank crises in America mm. in the United States often um, are tied very much to this system. It's a transition between that earlier system of well, you give your word, you recommend somebody, and I'll loan you the money, you loan me the money, to a more formalized system where you got to call in your debts and mm. you got to pay occasionally, and and um, and the kind of system. So the the, the antebellum banking system is a bit of a mess as you well know yeah. and it's a transition mode between this kind of system based on personal honor and keeping your word and the more modern contemporary system and and those two things are that tension i think yeah so so for, for, to give sort of a sketch of what the antebellum banking system if we can even call it that you have in addition to all the sort of informal credit networks going on you've got a few big banks in new york um you've also got a huge number of state chartered banks most of which are deeply unregulated, um, a lot of which are issuing bank notes. And, and so you would have had a whole number of different kinds of currency in circulation. Some of these banks are well capitalized. Many of them are not. Banks are folding all the time. Uh, and so I think there was a real justified mistrust in banking, right? That, that, that banks were, were not to be trusted, that bank, putting your money in the bank was not necessarily a safe place to put it. Um, and so, you know, when these panics happen, um, and, and banks fail, I think that that's, you know, the fact that they called them panics in the 19th century, I think says a lot about the sort of nature of the economic system that, that, you know, there wasn't a recession or sort of a gradual economic transformation. It was a panic. But something that panic is a better word too, because it goes to this concept of faith and, 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 um, mm. uh, Confidence. And fear. And fear. Yeah. So, you know, it, because a panic, like the Panic of 1819, which we'll talk about in mm. a second, is, is it almost a, that's better than the recession of 1819 because it, it speaks to the crisis of confidence that... that, um, that and, well, and how quickly these things happen. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, so let's, say, let's talk about the Panic of 1819, which is probably not something that many listeners know much about. So let's give them at least a little bit to sort of fill them in on, on what that's about without... Uh, Overwhelming them with details about the Bank of the United States and other kinds of things. Right, I will. I will try to do so, David. So, so I have to talk about the Second Bank of the United, United States. States yes. So, so um, uh, listeners of Hamilton and fans of Hamilton will know that one of uh, Alexander Hamilton's project was to create a Bank of the United States, which he successfully did in the early 1790s. That first Bank of the United States uh, was allowed to die by the kind of retire. We don't want yeah. to see. It. Yeah, it, 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 its charter came to an end. It had a 20-year charter, and it came to an end, and the Jeffersonian Republicans didn't renew it because they had skeptics, They were skeptical about banks, and we don't need to talk about mm. why they were, but they, they, there was a kind of ideological, political divide over this question. It turned out waging the War of 1812 without a national bank was really difficult, and, and the Jeffersonian Republicans, now Madisonian, I suppose, uh, had a change of heart, and in 1816, a second bank of the United States which was kind of modeled on the Bank of England, but isn't really uh, kind of, it, it was, was limited in certain ways, uh, was, was chartered with, again, a 20-year charter. 
And the second bank of the United States acted as a kind of a little bit of a lender of last resort, although that's not really, uh, it was more of a big private bank that did fund a lot of the state banks or loaned to a lot of the, the, the state banks you were referring to. It's sort of like a halfway between sort of like a, a J.P. Morgan Chase and the Fed. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, 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 it's 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 kind of a national bank, and it's kind of just a really big private bank, yeah. and it, it, it's a it, it's a public private thing, and it's 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 complicated. In the aftermath of not just the War of eighteen twelve, but really the end of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, there's a massive change in the Atlantic economy, which is that agricultural prices collapsed. Largely because Europeans uh, switched from killing each other to raising crops again. And so kind of wholesale prices shift. of things like wheat dropped. Americans have profited very handsomely during the Napoleonic Wars. This is one of the causes mm. of the War of 1812. From trading with both sides and, and um, agricultural prices were quite high. And the United States really thrived from about 1790 to say 1815. Or grew, its economic sector grew quite healthily. And there was a contraction after the war. The Bank of the U.S. was not directly related to this, but the economic upheaval combined with the bank calling in some of its debts led to a panic in 1819. And the panic of 1819 is really a kind of economic crisis that goes from 1819 really to the mid-1820s. This is really important for what's going to come which is the Panic of 1837, mm. which is directly a result of some of the actions taken by President Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is one of the people who's caught up in the Panic of 1819. So is Thomas Jefferson, for that matter. Debts were called mm. in, and people who, who were in debt found themselves in jeopardy. Um, and Jackson, for one, blamed the Bank of the United States for his mm. difficulties and for his... the, the the, the economic um, upheaval of the time. And many people, I mean, understanding economic shocks is not easy, and I, I, I can't confess expertise on this. So Jackson sort of saw um, correlation as causation, so the Bank of the United States caused the panic, as opposed to the Bank of the United States responded to this panic and arguably made it worse. Mm. But there was a real, you know, there was a deep-seated distrust of banks Anyway, in the Jeffersonian Republicans, we're going to come the Jacksonian Democrats. They're basically and a sort of a, deep, deep, a distrust of centralized power and wealth. That's and, right. And when that was what that's right. I mean, and, that's the knock against Hamilton, right? Yeah. This, you know, you're going to give all these rich people all the power, uh, and, and so the, the 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 party that will emer- go from being the Je- Jeffersonian Republicans mm-hmm. to the Jacksonian Democrats is a rural party, mainly not exclusively, but but. Predominantly, and it's a party of common people, at least common white people. And there's a belief among many of those rank and file Democrats in the 1820s and mm. 30s, let's call them to keep things simple, that banks are out to get them. Banks benefit the wealthy, mm. at least especially the big banks. Yeah, and that you know we're being screwed by yeah. them. And Jackson, during his presidency, and I'm happy to hand over no. to you, David, to talk about this, wages something called the Bank War, and he basically. Um, kills the Bank of the United States or seeks to kill the Bank. Mm. And I think we can use kill in this Yes, in yes, because he, he talked about killing yeah, the Bank. Between, and when Jackson says kill something, he, he means <laughs> yeah, kill He knows where he speaks. <laughs> so the, the, the charter for the Second Bank of the United States was due to expire in 1836, mm. 
when supporters of the bank sought to recharter it in 1832, that led to what historians have called the mm -hmm. bank war and contemporaries called the bank war between Jackson and the bank. Jackson successfully kills the Bank of the United States, the second bank of the United States. This leads to a bank panic, mm -hmm. a full-blown bank panic, uh, or, or a run on the state banks, which had been funded by the Bank of the United States, and we get the Panic of 1837. David, do you want to say something well, about the Panic of 1837? Before I do that, two things I want to highlight about what you said about the Panic of 1819. One is that there are huge international both causes and consequences for that panic, right? Yeah. That, that, and you'll see this in many of these uh, crises in the American banking system. They're not necessarily purely American. That they're, These are, even from 200 years ago, they're tied into international credit markets and what have you. And that lots of people who were hurt the most by the Panic of 1819 were not even people who even had money in the bank, right? They, they were people who were harmed indirectly other ways. They lost their job, their employer lost their, you know, businesses failed and other kinds of things. Uh, so there were lots of farmers who lost, you know, lots of, 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 of wealth as a consequence. So there, there's lots of people who were really harmed the most by that were honestly even people who were directly involved in, in the banking sector or even had bank accounts. So it's not people turning up at the bank and not being able to get their money. money. I mean, there, there's sort of ripple effects throughout, you know, so even if you're not interested in the details of, of how banks work, these things affect you. And I think that's true for, for all of these cases. So what happens with, uh, you know, the bank wars? One of the things Jackson's does to, to kill uh, the second bank of the United States is he takes all the money that the United States government had deposited in the bank, pulls it out of the, the second bank, and puts them into smaller state and local banks just across the country. You get, these are called pet banks at various points in time. And, and these, you know, his idea was, and I think this is sort of connected with ideas about Jacksonian democracy, centralized power is bad, local power is preferable, right? And I think that sort of ties into deep ideas about republicanism. It's the banking equivalent of states' rights. Right, exactly. You know, or, or that, you know, the, the, the best kinds of power, that which you can observe locally. And it turns out that, you know, that turned was a disastrous move because many of those banks ended up failing um, and, and otherwise making some some bad uh, bad investments. Um, you know, and there's a whole series of, of panics that happen in the 19th century uh, and they get progressively worse as the banking sector becomes bigger, right? So you've got, you know, this the panic in 1819, you got the panic in 1837, we get some really bad panics in the late 19th century. Um, and probably the, the, you know, you get a really bad one in 1873. Um, this is uh, a panic that starts with, with one large bank failing and then all of a bunch of other banks start to fail. There was a bank run, um, much like the one bank run you'll see later in the Great Depression in which, you know, people look at one big bank failing and they say, geez, is my money safe? They go and take their money out. And because people all take their money out, that's what caused healthy banks then to fail. Well, that's right? what happened to Silicon Valley because, Bank to some extent. To some degree. Uh, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank, I think, made some some very bad choices, both in terms of its client base and its uh, investments. But, you know, you know, one of the things about bank failures is, you know, not only do bad banks fail, banks that do everything right can also fail if people's confidence in the 
market as a whole declines. David, before you go to the post-Civil War mm. stuff, I'm wondering about the Panic of 1857. Because mm. we, we skipped over oh, that. okay, and, sure. And, yeah. and, and there was a panic, obviously, 20 years after the mm. 1837 panic in 1857. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, Kenneth Stamp, among others, has argued this was one of the precipitants to the Civil War. Is that, can you say something about that? Oh, sure. So, well, I mean, I think there there are a couple of things that are going on in, in eighteen fifty seven, both in terms of the politics of it and, and the finances of it. Uh, there are some international financial things that that happen in Europe in in the eighteen fifties that that lead to to a, a crisis in, in in finances. There's the impact of the California Gold Rush, which has weird ripple effects for the economy. Um, there's uncertainty about the future of the United States as a consequence of, of you know, the bleeding Kansas and other kinds of events. So there, there is a crisis there that, that, that you know, starts, like many things, they, they're first manifested in New York, but they really have you know, ripple effects throughout the economy. Is that a cause of the Civil War? I don't think it necessarily. I think it probably contributes in some small way. I think it does speak to, to you know, the sort of cyclical nature of bank failures about, you know, and I think I think we're seeing this actually at this particular moment right now. We're, we're you know, um, not quite twenty years after the 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 two thousand eight financial crisis, but uh, you know, the the people and the aftermath of these crises are you know are are very critical of banks, and then people start to to you know and, and are keen on, on regulating banks, and then afterwards. Um, you know, these things do happen in a, in a cyclical matter, I guess. Some of that has to do with business cycles and some of that I think also has to do with cycles and confidence. Um, in terms of banks, though, and, and banks that fail that makes a difference, um, there's one bank I think that, that I want to highlight here that where the banks, the failure of a bank really had a tremendous consequence. And this is a bank that failed in this panic of 18. 73, which starts with a uh, Jay Cook's company failing and then having a bank run. And the bank failure that, that I think is, is one that listeners should know about is the Freedman Savings Bank, uh, which failed in, in 1874. This was a bank that was chartered by Congress in March of 1865, so at the very end of the Civil War. So it's a, a congressionally chartered bank, and there weren't a huge number of those. And it was designed to be a bank for, as the name implied, for freedmen, uh, for African Americans who are, you know, enjoying, uh, who have been liberated from enslavement and and are now free. Uh, it starts uh, the sort of the, the the genesis of the Freedmen Savings Bank starts with black soldiers. Uh, the, the the United States Army enlisted uh, thousands thousands of African tens of thousands two hundred thousand. Exact African Americans in the uh, Union Army, um, you know, and they have to figure out also what are they going to do with the, their their wages, and so there are sort of uh, proto versions of, of this Freedman Savings Bank, um, but most of its early depositors are Union soldiers and then and Union Black Union veterans, uh, and it really becomes a uh, uh, for the decade that or so that's around, becomes really a, a great source of of black capital in in the United States. Uh, there are thirty seven branches in seventeen states. There's something in the order of sixty seven thousand depositors um, in, in this in this uh, Freedman Savings Bank. Um, but it 
falls victim to the panic of 1873, and it fails in part because the white board of directors made some pretty bad investments. They bring in Frederick Douglass at the very last minute to, to, to try and see if he can save the bank uh, as its uh, president in 1874, but the bank fails. And of course, when banks fail in the 19th century, and this is one of the big differences in, in when we get to the 20th century, when the banks fail in the 19th century, depositors lose everything, right? So the, the deposits are not insured, there's no FDIC, and so African Americans who had put all of the wealth they had accrued since uh, emancipation, all of that gets wiped off the table. Uh, and, and this was a bank that, that you know, was really the only bank that African Americans could use, and it was, uh, you know, a, a source of pride for many African Americans. Look, here's a So how many depositors were there, did you 67,000. Right, okay. So. Uh, now, if you're interested in black genealogy, the bank records are all digitized now. They're phenomenally interesting to look at so you can understand the growth of uh, black capital in the sort of decade after emancipation. Um, but it, it, it really, I think, had a, a tremendous effect on African Americans' attitudes both towards the federal government, because they said, look, here's this bank they created for us, and they allowed it to fail, and they allowed us to lose all of this wealth. But it also led to, a, I think, a skepticism among African Americans of banks generally uh, that lasted really until the end of the, the the end of the 19th century. So there's a whole generation of African Americans who, who looked at banks and said, no, I'm going to keep my money in my mattress. It's safer than putting it in a bank, because... You know, even the bank that's chartered by the government didn't uh, keep our deposits safe. Uh, so I think it's one of the really more interesting examples of what happens when a bank fails. And there's a real, you know, a whole... If you think about who those 67,000 depositors were, those were the wealthiest of the African-American community, you know, in, in thinking about the, um, you know, by that point, you know, 8 million African-Americans lived in the country those are the ones who had had the most wealth and they lost all of it, um, which I think is, you know, you can imagine alternative history where that bank didn't fail or was bailed out or something would have led to a very different outcome. So the biggest bank fail or the biggest panic mm -hmm. of the 19th century, though, is in 1893. Yes. And what happens then? Oh, well, that, that one is, you know... Uh, a financial crisis that's even bigger than, you know, some some financial crises are about banks and some of them are ones that involve banks. And I think... The, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. You know, yeah, there, there's, there's a panic, for instance, that happens, and we'll talk about in a minute, the panic of eight, 1907, which is called the banker's panic, right? Like that was a one that was sort of starts with banks. The panic in 1893 has all kinds of deep consequent or deep origins that have to do with this uh, choices about... Uh, the gold standard versus bimetallism, and that was a big debate uh, in, in the 19th century. The uh, question about the role of big business and then the sizes in which businesses ha had grown uh, and, and what have you. So that, I think that one is less about, you know, less transformative in terms of the banking industry than, than some of these other ones. Um, the 1907 one, the one that comes up a decade, a little bit over a decade later, though, is interesting in as much as it really begins with a, a crisis in, in New York banks. There's an effort to corner the copper market, I think, that leads to, a, when that fails, a, a whole series of, of banks in New York, which then, as now, was sort of the epicenter of the American finance. And it only stopped when J.P. Morgan, who was you know, the wealthiest man in the country, basically went 
got all the New York bankers in his library and said, look, guys, we're all going to go down if, if all these banks fail. So let us pool our resources, make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but that 1907 panic, which was, you know, wasn't as bad for, for the common people as the, say, the 1893 one was, it really did put a shock in, in people's thinking about banks and about how banks fit in, you know, what, what the real obligation of the federal government was uh, to um, regulate banks and, and to you know, guarantee uh, that the banking industry is secure. Because, it, you know, in this case, it was basically the actions of one super wealthy guy that, under, that made sure that the entire banking industry didn't fail. And there's a couple of things that grow out of the 1907 uh, bankers panic, I think, that are worth talking about. Um, one is the, the Federal Reserve, which happened, which was created in 1917. Um, and I think most people here are familiar, most listeners are probably familiar with the Federal Reserve as a, you know, both a organization and a regulatory body. But something that often gets forgotten about um, that the United States used to have but, and, and some people think it should have again, was a postal savings system. That one of the things that emerged after the, bank, uh, the, the bankers panic in 1907 was the creation of the U.S. Postal Savings System, which was uh, established in 1911. Uh, this was a, a movement that uh, the populace had, had, had pushed for at the end of the 19th century, but like most of the populist uh, reforms didn't get approved. And uh, but gets picked up by the progressives uh, a decade or so later. And this was a system run by the federal government, whereby if you want to, you can go into a post office and deposit money there, and your money would be guaranteed by the federal government. We've got a similar system here, and they had one in the UK. Okay, they did, oh, and and it was a model that that was actually I think borrowed from the UK. Federal Reserve Act is nineteen thirteen, not nineteen seventeen. I think it comes into yeah, I think it was passed in thirteen, but I think it. Like the, the Federal Reserve actually sort of starts doing its things in 1970. Thank you for the correction. Um, but before we had the Federal Reserve, we, we'd had this postal savings system that lasted for basically 50 years. Uh, and it was, it did some of the work that the FDIC later does. I mean, as much as these, these deposits were insured, they were also, because the Postal Service was everywhere, uh, you know, very localized. You know, there were lots of communities that didn't have banks you could go to, but you did have a post office. And so it was, you know, very popular for, for rural people, for farmers, for, for you know, for people who, who felt unserviced by, by, by the banking industry generally. Um, the postal saving system was, it was a really uh, important alternative to, uh, you know, commercial banks. Um, and it basically gets pushed out in the 1960s because commercial banks say, look to the federal government, you guys don't need to do this anymore. Please send your customers to us. Um, and whether that was a good idea or not is a matter of, of debate. But there's some people who, uh, Bernie Sanders, for instance, wants to bring back the, the postal savings system again uh, as, a, as an alternative to uh, for-profit banks. Uh, the other thing you, you start to see in the aftermath of the bankers' panic are people looking for lots of bank-like alternatives, and probably the biggest example of this is the rise of credit unions, which are doing much of the same work as banks but are not uh, driven by shareholders and shareholder profits the way that, that commercial banks are. 
uh, the first credit union in the United States, and this is also something that's imported from Europe, um, is established in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1908. Um, so it's have a piece with some kind of the developments we see in the progressive era. Yeah, no, I think it, it's you know very much trying to think about you know what are the alternatives to the sort of big business model of 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 banking and, and credit unions, which you know you look at depositors as shareholders and as 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 uh, you know less interested in generating a profit and more interested in serving a certain customer base. Um, I think is a very important sort of alternative to the sort of mainstream banking system. We need to get to the, we need to get to the Great Depression. We do, but before the, the depression, yes. yeah, the depression is is pivotal. But um, just a couple of things about this 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 pre depression mm. era, especially the post Civil War, mm. the era from the Civil War down to the Depression. Most of the bank failures, and you did a good job mm. of of explaining why their repercussions mm. are pretty wide ranging. But most of the failures are actually in New York. Mm. Um, so, so they, 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 they're focused on New York and well, depositors clearly suffer, uh, and can be wiped out. Uh, there aren't that many failures compared to what will happen in the depression. Hmm. So the failures of 1873, 101 banks failed in 1873. Uh, there was a panic in 1884 where 42 banks failed, 18 banks failed in 1890. The big one is 1893 down mm. to that point uh, when 503 banks fail. And then in 1907, there are 73 banks. Now, those numbers, there's a distortion there depending on how big the, the banks, banks are, are failing yeah. are. Uh, I recognize that. But by comparison with when we get to the Depression, between mm. November of 1930 and February of 1933, 2,499 banks failed in the United States. So uh, if you're keeping score in that kind of period from 1873 to 1907, 637 banks failed. Um, in November and December of 1930, 806 banks failed, far, you know, more than in that entire 40-year period. So the scale and scope of what happens during mm. the Depression dwarfs everything that went before it. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the point I'm trying to make here. So uh, these panics are important. The, these pre-depression panics are really important, but they're important more for the repercut their wider repercussions. Mm. The what we see during the depression with the, just the scale and scope of the number of banks that fail um, is a crisis that's that's well, it's international, but certainly it it it's, it's affects yeah. the entire nation. Okay, so let's talk about about. about what the responses to the bank failures of the Great Depression because there's obviously this huge number of banks that fail. Especially in November and December of eighteen, of nineteen thirty, um, FDR comes into power. What does he do? Well, first thing they do is they close the banks. banks they have right. a bank holiday. Now, bank holidays in Britain mean is hey, it's a long weekend. We get to go to the beach, or you know, we don't have to work. Um, the the bank holiday between fe in February and March of nineteen thirty three, the banks were closed to stop a run on the banks. So so mm. you couldn't go to the bank and take your money out. But, um, you know, so they were trying to stop, as I said, there are 2,500 mm -hmm. bank failures or 2,499 immediately prior to that. And just to, to, to kind of hit the brakes mm -hmm. on bank failures, the first thing they do is they have the bank holiday and they try to let people catch their breath and, and, mm -hmm. and try to get on top of this. In June of 1933, the FDIC is completely 
is created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and that guarantees depositors money in banks mm. up to a certain limit. It's now two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which was our joke at the top of the yes. the episode. Uh, but the FDI, the creation of the FDIC. I was amazed, you know, if you go to an American bank, there's a, there's a sticker, sticker on the door window, that yes. says FDIC protected. Uh, and basically the federal government is saying, we are the depositor of last resort. Mm. We've, we are guaranteeing your income, your, your deposits. This bank is safe. Right. Well, there's, you know, there's insurance that the banks pay a small you know, right. deposit into. And so, so yeah, there's a system for guaranteeing smaller deposits, relatively speaking. Yes, and that means you can deposit in the bank with confidence. And the vast majority of people have less than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank. Yes, uh, I do. Uh, yeah, I can. Yeah. Glad you're diversifying your 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 your, your millions. Um, the FDIC also comes at the same time. Uh, this is part of the the Glass Steagall banking reforms. Some other really important transformations in how banking works and how banks are regulated. Um, so they also split commercial and investment banking, and saying those are basically two separate things. And yeah, that the bank where you put your uh, paycheck in is not going to be the same bank that invests in risky stocks or invests in other um, less secure investments. And so there, there's an effort to regulate the banking industry in a much more profound way than it ever had before and to hold... Banks where people are putting their life savings in, you know, much more accountable for the choices that they're making. Um, and one of the things I think is really remarkable about, um, you know, the, the FDR banking reforms, the, the, especially these the, the Glass-Steagall ones, is, you know, basically how stable the U.S. banking system was for most of the 20th century. Because after that, we don't get these periodic panics. We get individual banks failing, but we don't get... Yeah. There was the savings and loan crisis in the 80s, which was a very particular kind of market of a set of banks. Uh, and that's was pretty serious. But, you know, between 1933 and really the 2008 financial crisis, there is a um, relative stability of the American banking system. I think that the, the choices made in the Great Depression, I think, sort of speak to how effective those are. Um, now, banks weren't always very happy about this, right? Because I think one of the, the, the complaints that banks had in the 1950s through the 1990s was regulations are shackling us. We can't do the kind late, of, let's make enough money. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, we're not be able to provide value for our shareholders or whatever kinds of... Um, nonsense bankers were saying. And one of the, the consequences of this, what, what bankers who have, have a fair amount of political capital, uh, both literal and metaphorical yes. capital, yes, um, actual capital, capital uh, is the uh, Bank Services Modernization Act of 1999, which doesn't get remembered very much. Yeah, but, I've got to confess, that one slipped back past me, David. But it repealed decent bits of the Glass-Steagall Banking Act, especially these are some of these barriers between uh, investment banking and commercial banking. Um, and some economists have said, look, that repealed some of those uh, things that were taken away, the deregulation, if you will, of the banking industry uh, in that act contributed in a fairly significant way to the 2008 financial crisis, right? That, that banks 
the failure of, of banks, both investment banks and, and, and commercial banks in 2008, were a part of lax regulation, but also part of, of deregulation. And those two things obviously sort of go, go together. So let's talk about 2008, because I think we can't understand this current moment without understanding at least a bit about 2008 in as much as anybody understand, understands 2008. Yeah, whether I understand 2008 or not, David, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I can speak with much expertise on this, uh, except to say that the interesting thing about 2008 to me is that the, the, the crisis really was at its, the, 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 as I recall, things were at their most dangerous it was in the of 2008 of course was an election year mm. and it was during the transition from the bush administration the second bush the second george w bush administration to barack obama um and and what we saw then which was quite important in retrospect mm. is that the incoming the outgoing administration and the incoming administration who didn't agree on much politically coordinated quite well mm. and worked together to help address that crisis. Now, people will have their own views about the, the, the so-called bank bailout and whether the bailout was either big enough or, or whether it was too big, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the adults seem to have been in the room in the uh, early winter of 2008, um, uh, 2009, um, and worked pretty effectively together. And that probably stabilized the system. And, of course, there was a lot of international cooperation as well. Uh, our, uh, the alumnus of our university who became Prime Minister Gordon Brown, takes, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer here, takes a lot of credit for uh, mm. staving off the, uh, uh, the worst effects of the, of the banking crisis of 2008. But there was clear and decisive political intervention mm. um, during that crisis that seems to have mitigated its worst effects, although the effects were pretty bad. Mm. So that, that that's an immediate reflection. The causes of it seem to have been banks speculating in a lot of bad debt. Yes. Um, it, it, well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that, that, that contributed, but I think you're, you're, you're right about the both the bad debt and the complexity of the bad debt, I think, is, is part of it, right? Yeah. That, that banks, um, in an effort to uh, you know, find ways and value for shareholders or whatever, are, are investing in, 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 in very complicated... Um, financial instruments, many of which it seems in retrospect, the banks didn't fully understand. Um, and, you know, the regulators both didn't understand and didn't have the tools to be able to keep up with the complexity of these instruments. And so there's both a failure of the banks to make good investments, investing in mortgages for people who, you know, probably shouldn't have had mortgages. Um, and, um, Regulations unable to sort of keep up with what the banks were doing. Um, you know, some of the uh, historians, uh, people who tried to sort of make sense of it, have pointed to the sort of alternative banking systems that 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 weren't regulated at all, that were were, were doing bank-like things, but weren't strictly banks, and therefore didn't fall under the um, administrative and regulatory rubrics. Um, you know, which leads to the this. Um, I mean, one of the, the, the language, though, from 2008 that really strikes me, and I think it sort of speaks to the moment we're in now, this language of too big to fail, right? The idea that some banks and other financial institutions were so important to the global economy that they would, you know, the United States government and other 
governments around the world needed to invest in them to keep them from bailing, which I think is a very interesting relationship between government and banks um, and governments and corporations that you would need to have this model of, of institutions that are so important that, that they are too big to fail, which I think sort of speaks to this longstanding debate or tension between sort of big banks and small banks and, and whether they're, you know, which of those people should have, have faith in. Um, because one of the things that's happened in the past couple of weeks, and, and uh, many of the financial uh, reporters have noted this, is that people uh, and companies are taking their money out of medium-sized banks and putting them into big banks now in the aftermath of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank because they say, well, in 2008, Congress demonstrated that they're not going to allow the really big boys to fail, and therefore we can put all our money there with some security because, you know, even if it's not FDIC insured, these particular banks have been deemed so important that, that the government will do anything to keep them uh, afloat. Um, and so I think that's an interesting moment in terms of our, our framing, uh, in terms of, of, of the place of banks in, in, in the political landscape. Also, in the current crisis, the um, the federal government has exceeded the FDIC limit of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Right. So Silicon Valley Bank, in particular, had lots of depositors that were tech startup things, um, many of which had a lot more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank. Um, and that's actually one of the things that made Silicon Valley Bank so uh, vulnerable was that it had a lot of really big depositors and didn't have that many mom-and-pop kind of depositors. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to a friend who knows a lot more about this and works in a, uh, a field adjacent to this world um, who, who as, as he said it to me, uh, as he framed it, was uh, there's a sort of irony here that we're seeing a lot of libertarian tech bros coming to the federal government with their hands <laughs> out to get bailed out. And I guess everybody, and this is not their quote, uh, I would add as a rejoinder, I mean, yeah, Everybody seems to be a libertarian until they need the help yeah. of the federal government. Um, well, I think you, you saw that in 2008, too, yeah. right, where you saw lots of you know, wealthy bankers who said, no, no, we don't want any regulation. But then when you know the bank's about to go belly up, they say, yes, but we do want um, billions and billions of, of dollars in a bailout. Otherwise, the consequences for the rest of the country are going to be so severe that... Um, I mean, we may not like that, but it's true. It's true. No, it's all, I mean, I mean well, so, so Biden, you know, but Biden's statement last week was interesting because he kept saying, you know, he said, don't panic. Mm. Your deposits are safe. You don't need. And of course, that's what he has to say. Mm -hmm. We're back to this question of confidence. Yeah. Um, of course, Stephen Colbert put it well, I think, in one of his monologues when he said, you know, the president saying, don't panic, don't panic, you don't have to worry about the banks is exactly mm. like getting a call from the babysitter saying everything's all right. Exactly. But. <laughs> but. Yes. Um, and, and that's true. Uh, Silicon, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, though, mm. is, is a, I do think it's different from 2008. I mean, I think the regulatory mm. environment is, is interesting, and that's, you know, that's an element of this. Mm. But part of it is also this seems to have been a response to inflation, paradoxically. Mm. And we talked about inflation a few months ago. Um, but Silicon Valley Bank had invested heavily in government bonds, and those bonds aren't worth as much as they used to be because of the rise of inflation and the, and the Federal Reserve raising inflation mm -hmm. rate, uh, raising interest rates. Yeah. Rate. Yeah. And, and so there was a kind of knock-on effect there. So, so, so the regulatory issue remains a problem mm. and is a factor here. 
the underlying, the apparently, the apparent underlying cause of this is different from what we saw 15 years ago. Although, again, mm. I want to stipulate for the record, I'm not expert in these areas. No. So I, I have neither expertise on 2008 no. nor on what's going on at the moment. So I'm just well, a guy who reads the paper. <laughs> I mean, thinking about, about how this fits into the regulation, there was, in the aftermath of the 2008 um, banking crisis, a uh, effort to put more regulations on banks since the Dodd-Frank uh, Banking Act of, of 2010. Uh, it creates the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and a number of other kinds of things. But a lot of those restrictions that were put in place in 2010 were repealed in 2018 um, under President Trump with the Economic Growth Regulatory, uh, et cetera, et cetera, Protection Act. Um, one of those bills that has a very long name, um, which you know was a response to lots of bankers saying we're being too heavily regulated, we're not allowed to do the work we need to do in order to grow the economy. And um, some of people point to that sort of uh, repeal of parts of the Dodd-Frank uh, regulations is one of the things that contributed to Silicon Valley Bank not being, um, and Signature Bank uh, being, being, being not held, held account to earlier, because uh, there are going to be consequences, I think, going forward. Uh, how, how, you know, how worried should we be now? In terms of we thinking, we, we, you know, there's been lots of these periods where people have, where bank failures have meant a huge amount of things somewhere was. Well, the true, the, the, the true answer is, how the hell do I know? <laughs> I mean, I, I would we, say. We don't provide financial advice <laughs> yes. on this show. Uh, if you take financial um, advice from us, you're doing something wrong. But. I, I think, I think, um, fortunately, um, it's a little bit like 2008 in that the adults seem to be in charge. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure if President Trump were in office, um, I would have this confidence. And, and people may have their views on whether the federal government should intervene in the economy and bank regulation mm. and so on and so forth. However, I think that the Biden administration, at some political risk, because mm. they'll be accused of spending money on a bailout and there'll be concerns about the deficit, etc., is not going to let the banking system collapse. And I think the central bankers of the leading the world's leading economies won't allow that to happen. It may mean that we end up bailing out rich people, mm. which we did in two thousand and eight. Yes. But that's the price of keeping things going. Um, so I, I'm not. I think it's a. I think it's a cause for mm. concern. I don't think. You know, the, the, I don't think we're in the same moment in peril we were in late two thousand and eight when it seemed like the global economy mm. might enter, it might go into a depression yeah. again, um, a real depression as like the nineteen thirties. It doesn't, well, but, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting, and I also I don't know because that's the future and we don't know that stuff. Um, I think there's an interesting moment though here where, where there's a, a, a discourse happening between: Do we save these banks and bail them out? And, make their depositors whole and what have you. And um, the uh, college debt issue, which is you know, the, 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 the loans that, that people have taken out at various points in time to pay for their education and those have been in hold and may be wiped away or not. And there's some series of court cases right now about those. And the discourse about should people pay those debts and what are the what are the responsibilities to pay those debts, and, and what's the role of the federal government in terms of, 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 of 
creating a, a stable future both for the economy as a whole and for people within it um, and and you know what where is money better invested in terms of saving uh, tech bros in, in the Silicon Valley who had their money in Silicon Valley Bank or, or saving people who had deeply in debt to go for college. But it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. So one, sure. can one can easily imagine, or I can easily imagine, a massive omnibus bill that has to be adopted to forestall yeah, sure. a crisis where they, you know, if you're going into debt, you might as well, if that is the federal government, you might as well do it all. Sure. Uh, and they flirted with this a little bit before with the, mm -hmm. with the, with the infrastructure bill, for example. So mm -hmm. uh, if the Supreme Court as I suspect it will, strikes down the, the student debt plan, then, it, not in the current Congress, but, you know, I, I can imagine a Congress revisiting that, depending mm. on what happened, depending on what happens in the elections next year, and doing yeah. something legislative to address it. But it's possible to do both things. It's not necessarily sure. a choice between the two. Yeah, but I think there's an interesting sort of discourse between the, those two, two kinds of crises happening simultaneously. Yeah. Right. Well, listeners in the future... Um, I hope your bank deposits are safe. I hope uh, you know it's not it's a wonderful life going on, um, and if there is, you know that turns out okay when an angel intervenes. Um, time for last drops. Yeah, David, I want to recommend a podcast produced by The Economist called Next Year in Moscow. Okay, uh, this doesn't isn't really about American history at all, uh, but it's a it's one of the best podcasts I've listened to recently. There are only four episodes so far, and I'm I'm eagerly awaiting the next one, and it's about. Russians who are opposed to the Ukraine war. And okay. it's a really, really, um, well, it's a high piece of journalism and it's high quality and the interviews are very powerful and they... Uh, and, and Sounds it's like a, some difficult reporting. To it's get difficult reporting. Well, it's been done by, a lot of it's been done by Russians um, mm. and, and certainly by Russian speakers. Um, and they talk to Russians who've fled the country and gone to places like Turkey um, and it's a salutary reminder that, um, you know, uh, we shouldn't generalize about people and countries. Mm. There's a lot of talk about the Russians this, the Ukrainians that, and, and portraying all Russians as being pro-war. And that's certainly not the case. And one of the powerful things that comes across is how, um, with, first of all, just the sheer bravery of these people, because the, their opposition comes at considerable risk to themselves, uh, particularly those who are still within Russia. Uh but also, there's a multi-generational aspect to this. So one of the people they interview in one of the episodes, there are only four so far, as I said, um, his grandfather protested the Russian invasion of, uh, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. Um, so it's kind it's of family tradition. tradition. Of, yeah. uh, anyway, it's, re it's just really, really, I, I, so next year in Moscow by The Economist, um, there are four episodes so far, give it a listen. It's really, really excellent. And it's a good reminder I mean, I, to make a U.S. Mm. connection, you know, we're, we're marking the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq right now. Um, there's a lot of coverage of that. Again, at the time, we said, look, not all Americans are the same. We're not all monolithic. We don't all support this. Or many people said that. Um, it, this is a reminder that uh, there are some very, very brave people in Russia opposing uh, the war in Ukraine mm. and doing what they can. Mm. Um, and it's well worth a listen. Right. What about you, David? Uh, well, I want to recommend a story. This is reported in multiple places, but I'll recommend the uh, version in the Washington Post about a, a new American girl doll. 
Frank, are you familiar with the American Girl dolls? I am. My daughter had one. She wasn't really into dolls, and she wasn't really into American Girl dolls because she was raised here, although um, her American relatives gave her one at one point. Okay. I am familiar okay, with American so Girl I, dolls. So yeah, my, my daughter had, had several of these. My wife actually had one when she was a child. So we, American Girl dolls were a big part of, of, of our um, you know, family experience. Anyway, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, they, they are, as the name implies, dolls. They have a number of different series, but one series that's very important uh, in, in the line is a historical dolls series. Since so they have dolls that are set like in the 1890s and one set in the 1930s and one set during the American Revolution. And they have the doll and they've got clothes and the set accessories and a bunch of books that go along with them. And, and these are a very important cultural phenomenon that, that, that for, for several decades, you know, this has been, you know, an important, uh, both an important toy, but also kind of an important uh, historical education for some people. Like my daughter, who doesn't particularly like American history, it's interested in, in the, the dolls, and or at least she did, uh, and the historical moment connected with them. What's intriguing uh, is that a couple weeks ago, American Girl announced its new historic doll, uh, which is, they're all set in a particular time period. Uh, this one is set in 1999. Yeah. In, and it's actually a set of twin dolls. They're, they live in Seattle. There's always sort of a biographical element to the story that goes along with the doll. A and this has led to some um, uh, anxiety among the kinds of people who, who grew up with American Girl dolls because now they see themselves represented in doll form and, and uh, they're now considered historic uh, from 20-something years ago. Uh and so there's been interesting sort of reflection pieces both on the history of American Girl dolls and their place uh, in the both toy landscape and educational landscape, but also uh, what does it mean that 1999 is now um, historic uh, for people to play with with their with their children. So what accessories do they have? Tamagotchis? And uh, yeah, they got like, like yeah, and... they got like an MP3 player. You know, they listen to Nirvana. You know, it's it's it, they got like you know band T-shirts and stuff. And, um, I've always kind of hoped that they would come up with a, a Puritan doll, you know, like a seventeen or you know sixteen nineties doll where they have four outfits, but they're all the same. Um, but that probably wouldn't be very be very marketable. You know, Salem witch trials dolls, but uh, it, it it's an interesting you know moment about when, when does your childhood become history and become historic. Uh, you know. Mine became history a long time ago, David, so I'm yes. just laughing at all of you. Oh, yeah, to be sure. <laughs> right, on that note, cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.